Thank you. Please remain standing for our reading of the word. You can see in your bulletin there that you need to turn to Acts chapter 2. And while the sermon does center on verses 38 and 39, we will back up a little bit and begin reading at verse 22. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear, for it was not David who ascended into heaven. But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word and were baptized, were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you this day for this sacrament which places the gospel in front of us in a visible form, and we thank you for this reading of your word which puts the gospel in front of us in the written form and to be declared to us. Lord, make our hearts soft. Unstop our ears. Give us eyes to see that we might see the glories of God and the accomplishment of the salvation of his people. In Christ's name I ask, amen. Now, if you would, please be seated. Let me just say that Seth announced last week that we would have a better preacher for two weeks. I feel obligated to let you know we tried to get those guys, and uh, we're going to make do. So here we go. And also, let me ask a question. 
And yes, those of you watching on live stream, you can raise your hand too. We'll get a count from you later. How many grew up in a Presbyterian Reformed church? Very, very small. Actually, my son, yes, Mike. Um, you know, that is, I find that to be the rarity among us. Uh, it seems that we either grow up in, a, you know, Baptist, Methodist, whatever, um, and then at some point we migrate into the Presbyterian church. And so we actually have a more, much more broad background. And so when we have a sacrament like this, on a day like this, uh, you know, it's just interesting to see who grew up with this. Um, and so today, just because of the occasion, I'm going to take the occasion to talk about a few distinctives. And we see these things in our passage, so I'm not just pulling this out of a hat. I'm not writing my personal preferences here. Um, we hold these things by conviction because we, we see them in the scriptures. Um, and so, you know, in broad evangelicalism today, we're sometimes told to not play up the distinctives. But I do find that when you try to maintain unity, at, at, at sometimes the cost is very high. <laughs> and then you no longer have a definition of what you're unified around. And so I, I, it's not my intention to be divisive this morning, but it is my intention to emphasize our distinctives since we're already going down that path this morning. So as you've seen, we've already had an infant baptism, a pedo-baptism. And this is uh, in the church today, at least in America, probably very much a minority view. I mean, those of you who didn't grow up in the Presbyterian Reformed Church, how many of you witnessed an infant baptism growing up or sometime in your life? So you witnessed some, um, but it is not the predominant view in our country. However, for those of you that like peer pressure, it is the dominant view and practice of the church through the centuries. Uh, it is somewhat of a, minor, uh, uh, a modern neglect in the evangelical church. So we've already seen the infant baptism. We will come back to that in our text. But there's also another one because this really is the foundation of some of our distinctives, and that is we hold a particular view of Scripture. We are, if you need to put a title to it, covenantal in our understanding of the Scripture because we believe the structure of the Scripture is based around the covenants. That's how God has communicated it to us. And the emphasis there is on an underlying unity of the Scriptures. That's important. That is hugely important. I don't believe you can understand our text this morning, verses 38 and 39, without understanding it in, in light of the framework of the entire unity of the Scriptures. Um, and this is in contrast to an alternate view that, that divides the scriptures, I believe, improperly into too great of a distinction. Um, in, in our day, without naming names, there is a megachurch preacher here in the past uh, year who has come out saying that we really need to unhook our understanding of the gospel and of the resurrection and of Christianity itself from the Old Testament as a whole. And so I worry when I see this being propagated on a large stage that that is an improper dividing of the scriptures. And so while we stress a unity, we do not deny growth in God's revelation of his plan. We do not deny great diversity, but yet there is an underlying unity because it is the plan of God and the communication of God that ties it all together and then makes sense of the whole. And so we stress a unity of the scripture. This unity is not like a piece of chalk where you break it up and it's all still chalk, but it's more like a symphony. And yet there is this underlying thread. There is this theme that works its way through. And so the unity becomes even more beautiful as you see its fullness. And I think that's important as we look at our text today. So our text will be best understood as connected, as flowing out of what came before. Not disconnected from it, not a brand new thing, but connected. 
For God is one, and his communication is one, and his plan is one. And then third, we will touch on it at the end, and I'm going to disappoint some of you all because it's just too big to include in this sermon, but it's in our text. We do stress the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. All things. And whether we're willing to accept it or not, this includes even over the decisions and actions of fallen creatures, including the decision of, of salvation, of repentance and faith. Can't explain all that this morning. Maybe we'll follow up with a new sermon next time Seth has a vacation. So I'm going to punt that down the road other than we're going to see it in the text. So the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. So a day of distinctives. And one more time, I hate to sound as if I'm overly apologizing. I really am. But I'm not trying to be overly divisive. But we do hold these things with conviction, convictions or we would not be Presbyterian and Reformed. We hold these things for reasons. We believe good reasons. Now, let me give you the context of our text in case you're unaware. We did not do, uh, we did not celebrate or talk about the day of Pentecost this year because of the virus, because of our, our isolation. But our text takes place on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was also known in the Old Testament as the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits where they would be begin to bring. It's towards the end of one of their harvests. I can't remember if it's the barley over the wheat or the wheat over the barley, but one of their harvests is coming to an end, and so the people begin to show up with tokens of their harvest as an offering to God, and it's one of the, it's one of the festivals during the year which God commanded all the male Jews, all, all the families to come to Jerusalem and have a great feast, and it be a holy day to the Lord. So this is the Pentecost, Feast of Weeks. And during this time, when Jerusalem is crowded, something new catches their attention. This is the arrival of the Spirit. This was spoken of by John, who said, I baptize in water, and yet one would come after me who would baptize you in the Spirit and in fire. This was promised by Jesus himself, who, as before he ascended, reminded them in Acts 1, verses 5 and 8, where he said, stay in the city until the gift which I will send you, the promised Spirit, will come upon you. And you will be filled with power and be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but all throughout the world. And so the promise of the Spirit arrives. And there's this great manifestation. There's the sound of a rushing wind. There are tongues of fire that distribute themselves and fall upon the heads of the apostles, God's people, gathered. And then they're here. What probably begins is a small undercurrent and grows to be this loud cacophony of voices. And maybe at first they don't understand what's going on, but then people from every every nation throughout the Roman Empire who have come to Jerusalem to worship begins to hear that some of this is making sense to them, and they're hearing the declaration of the mighty deeds of God being declared to them in their own languages. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And as you would imagine, a crowd gathers. It doesn't take much, does it, to gather a crowd. And so you can imagine... The crowd gathered very quickly, probably a crowd of great size. In fact, later we find out that there are 3,000 converts, and since not the whole crowd gets converted very often, there's a pile of people out here in the streets. And Peter, being a good preacher and being recently empowered by the Spirit as a witness, gathers up, stands up among them, and begins to preach. I'm going to paraphrase his sermon rather than go back and read it or add to it. And he says, why are you all so surprised at this? See, if it were a brand new thing, they should be surprised. But he says, why are you surprised? This is what the prophets foretold. This is what God had said he would do. This is what he had promised he was going to accomplish among us. This is the coming of the Spirit. 
announcing the arrival of the last days, when the forgiveness of sins is announced or declared to you, because God has actually accomplished the salvation which he has promised for his people long ago. Now, did God clearly state it? Well, he gives us, he gives us many things in the scriptures in the form of a seed, which later begin to grow and take root. They're a little more recognizable as we go. But, so, so it may be a little difficult to understand, but yet now, neither is this thing a new thing as in a sense of disconnected from what God has been doing. So God has now accomplished the salvation of his people through a man, a man whom he has appointed, prepared and appointed to be both Lord and Christ. This is the man, several of the ways God spoke about it in the past was, this is the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. This is the substitution. Remember the sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah where God provides a ram to take Isaac's place. This is substitution, substitutionary sacrifice. This is also the Passover lamb of Exodus 12, which Moses commanded the people to slaughter and then spread the blood on the doorpost that the angel of death might pass by. This is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who had no sins of his own, but on whom God laid the sins of his people that they might be clean, that they might be reconciled to him. And so in all these pictures, God has been speaking all along that one day he would come and solve the problem of sin for his people and he would reconcile them through himself, through the blood of a sacrifice. And he did all of this in a man. He did all this in his champion whom he had prepared and appointed, the one who would come and conquer sin and death and the devil, and who is now, by virtue of the resurrection, been exalted to God's right hand. And so, even though he's been saying the name all through this sermon, I left it to the end for the sake of drama. Who is the man? Who is the man, young children? Who is the man we're speaking of? This man is Jesus. This man is Jesus. Now, can you imagine... Imagine the audience. Imagine the crowd in the street. This is the man seven weeks ago whom you betrayed to the Romans and made sure they put on a cross and executed publicly before your eyes. This man, the one you refused to be identified with, the one you refused to listen to, this man is the one who God has appointed prepared and sent to accomplish his good purposes for his people. This is Jesus, the one you rejected, and yet the one God has proven to be the man by raising him from the dead and exalting him to his right hand on high. It's Jesus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine, hopefully, the weeping? We know that they were hit. I had an old man tell me one time, if you pick up a rock and throw it into a pack of dogs, how do you know who's been hit? Right? The one that yelps. The one that helps. Only here, it appears to be pretty widespread. There was a lot of yelping going on in the crowd that day because Peter's comments have hit their mark. In verse 37, we see that they were pierced or cut to the heart. This means that their consciences were wounded. I think in the medieval times, they would say vexed and flayed. I got that from a Martin Luther movie. Isn't that great? Isn't that visual? Do you get the sense? Their consciences had been vexed or flayed. They were cut to the quick. Okay, so it hit its mark. Peter's comments, Peter's sermons are hitting their mark. There's a conviction coming over these people. And you could almost sympathize, couldn't you? I mean, if you had nothing but the Old Testament scriptures, would this all be clear to you yet? And yet it would be coming. It's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. Now, I have to stop and ask, does anybody do that anymore? 
Okay, jigsaw puzzle. I've seen my wife online, you know, click and drag and... But a jigsaw puzzle, but you know how that is when somebody hands you a jigsaw puzzle of a thousand pieces and then they take the box away from you and say, figure it out. Okay, and it's, you know, at first it's nothing but frustrating, but it begins to take shape. It begins to have a form to it. You always start with those border pieces and then you kind of work in. It begins to clear up a little bit, but can you, don't you hate it? You get to the end of the box because somebody's been in there before and there's pieces missing. And so even though it appears as if this is going to be a nice work of art or a nice photograph and it's going to have some attraction there, you can't quite make out what was it. Well, that's kind of the Old Testament revelation of God to his people. He certainly had been speaking. But yet maybe not all the pieces were there until Jesus. And so for the first time, they're seeing the pieces fall into place. They're seeing how God has spoken all of this time, and they're realizing they messed up as God opens their eyes to see the glory of the picture he's been, he's been assembling for centuries. And that's, that's why they're being convicted. That's why they're being cut to the quick. That's why their consciences are raw at this moment. So over time, this, Jesus himself fulfills He is the missing pieces. He fulfills all the promises of God. And so their response is what you would expect it to be. What do we do? What do we do? Is it too late? Have we irretrievably sinned? Is there grace sufficient for this? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in my preparations, I almost stopped right there. Because I want you to hear the question. Is there grace even for that? You know, you think you've sinned? You think somehow your sin has has caught God off guard or somehow reached a measure at which there is nothing left for you? Well, if so, you haven't been paying attention. (laughs) You didn't catch God off guard. You haven't surprised him. This is according to the plan of God. And you can bet if he plans ahead, if he prepares a man and he sends him and accomplishes his good purposes as a blessing to his people, then you can bet it's sufficient even for you. It is sufficient for your sins as well. So they come and they say, what shall we do? And they come in fear and trembling. And then Peter speaks in verse 38. Peter said to them, repent, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Spirit. Now, before we go further, we have to address what here is a difficulty. Is it not? Did you see it? We have no choice. It says, be baptized, each one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And in that sense, taken by itself, does it not sound like there's something one must do to receive God's forgiveness? Okay. Well, we have to answer this. Just like you got to give Seth credit. He's had a couple of chapters in Genesis of late that are difficult to preach, right? There's no doubt. I mean, and, and, and we as a church are committed to going through the scriptures, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, except when you're the guest, you get to pick and choose a little bit. But it's here in the scriptures, and so we must address it. This sounds like be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and if that is the case then that is something you must do in order to please God, in order to receive the forgiveness. That becomes a work. And I can't go through all of it, but let me just tell you there is an answer. (laughs) This is the only place in the book of Acts that puts these things in this order. And so baptism 
is this is the only place in which it precedes forgiveness of sins. However, there are several places in the book of Acts where baptism is not even mentioned, and it simply is repent for the forgiveness of your sins. And in fact, throughout the entire New Testament, there are over a hundred times where it is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness of your sins. And baptism is entirely unmentioned. Okay, so there is some flexibility as to the order of the Greek text. There is, there is this idea of using scripture to interpret scripture. So when you find a difficulty, you look elsewhere and say, well, what is this actually supposed to be? There is, there are grammatic reasons why it does not have to be interpreted this way. So there are other potential understandings of how this could be said. It could be baptized on the basis of the forgiveness of sins. And that's perfectly legitimate to the original language. So those things have to be considered. And when you consider that it is completely, it is also, it is completely inconsistent throughout Luke, Luke's writings, it is also completely inconsistent with what Paul writes later, such as in Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified, that is made acceptable to God, by faith apart from works. You go to the entire book of Galatians, and Paul is very adamant that it is faith plus nothing whereby you receive the forgiveness of sins. So I think the way we need to see this today, looking at the bigger picture, looking at the whole context of the scriptures, is that this is not intended to be a precise doctrinal formulation here. But rather, this is the inclusion of several elements which are themselves a doctrine, not a doctrinal formula, but they are the ingredients or the parts of the whole conversion salvation call. And as we have already spoken of today, baptism is important, but is not necessary for salvation. It is a sign and a seal of the spiritual reality. It represents the cleansing of sin. And so it is based on the forgiveness of sins. We receive the sign of the sacrament. And so it is not be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, but rather be baptized on the basis of the forgiveness of sins, or rather put your faith in Christ, receive the forgiveness of sins, and be baptized. And God adds these things because of the smallness of our faith. Just like we say when we do the Lord's Supper, we rarely get to do baptism. We do the Lord's Supper regularly. This is because of the smallness of our faith and the weakness of our understanding that God puts pictures and he puts toys and manipulatives into our hands to convince us of the truths that they represent to strengthen our faith. And so that is the proper understanding of baptism here. So he calls us. He is answering their question, what must we do? And he's telling them how they can become a part of this community of faith, how they can be reconciled to God. They are recognizing their sin, and under this conviction, what shall we do? And he says, first of all, repent. And while faith is not mentioned in this immediate text, I think it's implied. It's certainly present and implied in this text. Text. Let's look at repent first. Repent, the root meaning of repent, you probably heard before, is a change of mind. It's kind of like bringing your understanding in line with God's understanding. To me, that just doesn't go far enough because it's not just a change of mind. This is such a deep reorientation of your understandings and core convictions that it actually affects your decisions and how you live. You know, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, as a man thinks, so he is. The book is How Then Shall We Live? But the, but the verse that he's going on is As a Man Thinks, So He Is. You want to know what somebody really believes, see what they do. You want to know what somebody's priorities are, go through a checkbook. Not that anybody uses a checkbook today either. I understand. It's all online. Okay, but you want to see priorities, look at those things. You want to see what they really believe. It's not just listen to what they say, but it's watch how they walk day by day. And so faith, I believe, is included here because I actually think that's what 
this be baptized has to be. This is repent. Change your mind. Change your mind specifically about the person and work of Christ whom God has put right before you as the one who has died for the sins of his people. This is the one whom you crucified seven weeks ago. You need to change your mind. God has raised him from the dead and made him Lord in Christ. And the question is, what will you do with him? How will you respond to him? Change your mind. And then, as Paul says later in Acts chapter 26, he says, I told them that they should repent and prove their repentance by their deeds. And so he follows it up with, and be baptized into his name. Be baptized into his name. This one you rejected. The one whom you cried out to be crucified. The one whose blood you seem to be thirsty for. Now be baptized. You want to say you repented? Talk's cheap. Be baptized into his name. So identify with him. Align yourself with him. Take his mantle upon you. Submit to his authority. When you are baptized into somebody's name, you take their name on you. You are under them. Repent. Change your mind and submit yourself to baptism into the name of Christ. So specifically, it's not just change your mind. It's change your entire core convictions and change and and let these things work themselves out in your being and prove it with actions consistent with repentance. This is true repentance manifested. Actions consistent with repentance. So the results of true repentance or faith in Christ. Now we come to the results. Verse 38 still. The results of true repentance and faith in Christ. The forgiveness of sins... Can you imagine? If that's all we ever got out of this, wouldn't that be enough? Aren't you tired of your sins? God has provided for your sins. And so what we receive, the results of true repentance and faith in Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, the cleansing, the washing, which is signaled, signified, sealed by the waters of baptism, the forgiveness of sins, this is the need of all mankind. All mankind. No matter what you hear on the news or on the internet about the basic goodness of mankind, and if only we didn't have corrupting influences on it, that is such a bunch of garbage. The need of all mankind is dealing with the sin problem. We are all born in sin. We are all guilty of our forefathers' sins. We all prove our sinfulness every day in thought, word, and deed by our lack of allegiance to the one who has died for our sins. We have a sin problem. Whether you're inside or outside of the church, you have a sin problem. And he calls us to repentance, and the first gift is the forgiveness of sins. Have you ever read the Pilgrim's Progress? When when the pilgrim who has been carrying the weight, the boulders up on his shoulders, and he comes finally to the cross, and it rolls off and falls into a pit down the hill and is never seen anymore. Can you imagine how light the steps on the journey from that point on? The forgiveness of sins. You will receive the forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit. Not, and I say this contra some other teachings, admittedly, not the gifts of the Spirit. The Spirit does indwell us, minister to us. He does distribute gifts among us for the building up of of the church. But that's not what's being spoken of here. This is the gift of the Spirit himself. This refers to the Spirit's inward ministry in the believer. You will receive the Spirit. This is what was promised by Jesus. Remember in John 14 and 16 where he talks about, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send you another, and he will be Christ in you. He will be your comforter. 
your teacher, your guide, the one who strengthens, the one who encourages. This is the inward ministry of the Spirit. This is Christ in you. So when he went away, when Jesus went away and said, I will be with you always, he is with you in the ministry of the Spirit. There's the forgiveness of sins. There's the gift of the Spirit, this inward ministry. And all of this really represents the covenant blessings that are ours in Christ as foretold. I wanted to give just a couple examples of that because we're talking about the unity of the Scriptures. If you very quickly, very quickly, some of you are probably there before me. That's why I didn't give you the reference. Jeremiah 31, it's the new covenant. I know you're aware of this. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people." They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. You hear that? I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Turn over a couple pages to the book of Ezekiel, please. Ezekiel chapter 36, chapter 36, verses 24 to 27. For I will take you... From the nations, I will gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you. You see the waters of baptism, the cleansing, the washing that he promises? I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. Do you see the forgiveness of sins and the ministry of the Spirit? See, the Spirit's not just a New Testament thing. Okay, the Spirit was the promise of God. The forgiveness of sins, the Spirit, the inward ministry of the Spirit, this dwelling of the Spirit within you, is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises from long ago. In fact, it goes all the way back when we already mentioned the seed of the woman who would crush the seed of the serpent. But in the time of Abraham, what was the core commitment of God to Abraham? I will be a God to you and you will be my people. Now, that doesn't tell us everything. That gives us parts of the jigsaw puzzle. But later on, we see in the Davidic covenant that the one who would save you from your sins would come. The one who would rule on David's throne would come through the line of David. You know, later on, we're told the suffering servant that we mentioned would come and he would fulfill God's purposes and he would die for the sins of his people, reconciling them to God. In all these ways, this arrival of the Spirit, this forgiveness of sins and his ministry within is the fulfillment of the covenant promises of God that go back centuries. It's not just a new thing. We do not unhitch the Old Testament. We embrace it. We embrace it. It makes the picture so much grander. It gives you such a bigger idea of who God actually is. And what he has done. When God makes a promise, and he almost always, at least in the scriptures, he speaks before he does. But when God makes a promise, you can bank on it. Promise made, promise kept. So, who are the subjects? Who are the recipients of all this goodness of God? And this is really where I started in my studies on this because it just 
piqued my interest. Verse 39, for the promise is for you. We're just going to start right there. The promise is for you. So Peter has already told them they must repent and put their trust in Christ. He's already told them of the benefits of doing so, the fulfillment of the blessings of God's covenant. But yet, you know, sometimes we get stuck in our guilt, don't we? We get stuck in our guilt. And so he continues to exhort and encourage them. We see this in verse 40. With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Sometimes we need encouragement, and God gives us so much more. And so here he reminds us that the promise, this forgiveness of sins, this this ministry of the Spirit, these covenant blessings, the promise is for you. It is not just for the apostles who you saw receive fire on their heads. It's for you. Now, in the text specifically, it's for the Jews especially who were present on the day of Pentecost. But the Jews are just the first of God's chosen people. Back in the original Abrahamic covenant, he said, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. This is for the people of God. The promise is for you and your children. (laughs) I love that. For you and your children. Now, and your children. Again, how would you understand this if you did not have the Old Testament? How would you understand this if you didn't have the promises of God going back? You realize Abraham was like 2100 B.C., <laughs> 2,000 years already. And, and have the children been included all that time in God's promises? Absolutely. And so here at the beginning of something new, they might have been thought, okay, the promise is for me, but what about my family? They've always been a part of this. They've always been a part of the household of God. They've always been a part of God's people. What about them? The promise is for you. And your children. Just the way God has always worked among his people. I personally think this is so strong. There are, this is such a strong statement. There are people who would accuse those who baptize their children of saying, look, there's no explicit command in the New Testament to baptize your children. So we baptize believers only. And I say, that's hogwash. It really is. You're right. We have to admit that's true, but far from being an argument from silence, I think that on the first occasion of the presentation of gospel after the resurrection of Jesus, the children are included, meaning that which you have lived in for 20 centuries is still the case. God is still concerned about your kids and about your family and about your descendants because his faithfulness goes to generation after generation after generation. He will accomplish his purposes. He cares about you and your kids. The promise is for you and your children. So for us to set aside the inclusion of the children, to me, would require the explicit command. And the burden of proof is on those who would exclude what God has always included, which are the children of the people of God. So the promise is for you and for your children. And if the promise is for them, then so is the sign of God's promises. And so we do not withhold from our children what God has given to them. They have a right to it. Having been born into his community, they have a right to it. So the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Let's look at just the first part of that. As many, not as many, for all who are far off. There are some who say this is just the Jewish people or the Israels, Israelites who were in the dispersion, those who had been scattered throughout the centuries because of the incoming armies and empires that had just spread them around. 
That is not the case. Ephesians 2 specifically identifies the nations, the Gentiles, as those who were far off but now have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So the promise is not just for you who are sitting here. It's not just for your children, but it's for everybody out there as well. It's for everybody out there as well. Those who are far off to the ends of the earth. Numbers 14, 21, where God said, As surely as I live, the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. And how is that most done except when he converts sinners to saints? He sets up little images of God all around the earth. Remember images of God like Nebuchadnezzar set up, images of himself for people to fall down and worship? Kings did that in the Old Testament. It's how they made their glory known in various places. Well, God is setting up images to himself because we are made in the image of God. And when he resurrects us from the dead, when he renews us and sets us up, the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. The promises for you and for your children and for all those who are far off. And then as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Now this touches on sovereign election, like I mentioned before. And while we affirm what we have already said, that it is true that all who repent and believe will be saved, that's that's all you have to know. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You will have the forgiveness of sins, the ministry of the Spirit. The question is, how do dead people believe? Will dead people repent of their sins? Because the scriptures teach us that we are, by nature, from birth on, dead to God, spiritually dead to him, separated from him. Dead people don't believe. So who will believe? Those whom God calls to himself. Those whom God calls to himself. We see this in John six forty four. Jesus himself speaking, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So all you need to know is your responsibility is repent and trust in Christ. But somewhere down the road, you're going to come to grips with the idea that before you did that, God called you. Not just from the ministry of the word, which everybody hears, but he also sent forth his spirit. Because he has chosen a people for himself from before the foundation of the world. And they will all, all come in. None be lost. Now, I understand that there is great mystery there. I understand when I first heard that, I rebelled against that. You know, in fact, you know, there are different ways of questioning things, right? I taught youth for about a semester, and that's challenging. (laughs) But, you know, you want to be open to their questions. Well, some people have a way of questioning that is nothing but pure rebellion, is it not? I mean, they just want to cloud the issue. They just want to make their point and to put it in the form of a question to come. No, no. Be careful that in your questioning of the things of God that you're not saying that's not fair, Or that you're not questioning God and saying, well, why not me? Do you see the self-centeredness and the arrogance of both of those? The the person who comes to understand the absolute election of God, this work of God that precedes what you see in your own mind and heart, the person who gets that, whether they fully comprehend it or not, their actual question is, why me? Why me? It, It comes from such a more humble place, which is evidence of true repentance. So, I cannot... Go on with that this morning. But it's in here. We hold these by conviction, these distinctives. And and we shouldn't shy away from them. We shouldn't shy away from them. God is so much bigger. You may not get it. He may seem inscrutable. He may seem like you can't wrap your arms around it. You can't get your mind around it. 
But that just magnifies his glory. I will gladly follow him. Not the God of my imagination, the God of his communication, what he has told us. So, for those here who have never trusted in Christ, who have never even realized that they're sinners, and I realize that's probably a small number here today, but for those of you who have never wrestled with these questions because you've never been bothered, okay, you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, well, what would you do now? What will you do now? Christ has clearly been portrayed to you feebly, I admit, you know, with words that fall short. But yet Christ is the Savior of sinners. God has promised to provide, to make up for what you could not do for yourself, and he's done it all in the person of Christ. And so what will you do with him today? What will you do with him today? Ignoring him is not good. It's not enough. You know, when we were kids and we wanted some, we wanted to insult somebody, we ignored them. Okay? Ignoring it is not enough. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do now that you have been shown or declared, it has been declared to you, not only your need of salvation, but the way, the way of salvation, because He is the way. He is who you need to know. He is the provision for your sins. In Him there is forgiveness of sins and salvation. You're gonna, Keep on rejecting him. I call you like Peter did. Repent. Change your mind. Receive the forgiveness of sins and the ministry of the Spirit. For the people of God, for those who have already crossed over, you know, what can you say? Rejoice in God's goodness. He has set his love upon you from before the foundation of your world. He has committed himself to do you good. He has promised that where you fall short, because the psalmist tells us that we are but dust, and he's very aware of our shortcomings. And yet he has committed himself to do all that is necessary to rescue you from your sin and its penalties. He has reconciled you to himself. He has given you sacraments and signs of his work. He has given you the privilege of access to his throne as we come in prayer. He has given you the excitement of knowing that there is a future in the life to come. This is not just for the here and now. He has done all this, and he has sealed you with his spirit in the present And for the life to come as the inheritance of what is still to be yours, there is nothing for you to do but to rejoice in your God and offer him praise. That's that's the mindset of your daily life. That's the mindset of your daily life. And that, I think, is a fair and reasonable application of the text we have this morning. So if you would, pray with me. Father, I pray that you would use our time this morning to convince and convert sinners to trust in Jesus. And I pray for your people that they would be encouraged and strengthened and built up in the faith and that their hearts might be filled with the joy of the Lord, knowing that you are for us. And so, Lord, receive our praise as we offer it back to you. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.